All right, welcome to the next episode of uh, Grid Rising. Today, I have a friend I've known for the last seven years since I joined YPL, Norris County, with Rajiv Kapoor. Um, as usual, he's going to give us a quick intro of, of a little bit about him, and then we're going to get right into a lot of things today. Um, enlightened leadership, we're going to talk about grit, we're going to talk about failures, being an entrepreneur. Um, so a whole lot of good topics for us to go through, family, so... Um, with that, I'll turn it over to you. Just give a little bit of a background on, on who you are. I know you've, you've done a lot, so give us the short version. Yeah, first, Trent, you know, it's an honor to be with you. You, you and I have been good friends now for the last few years, and you're awesome, and I'm just, just glad to be here. And thanks to your team for putting this on. So, look, I mean, I, you know, for me, like, I'm a Southern California boy born and raised. I'm also the local boy who left. And uh, I left in uh, 1991, and I went to the Midwest, and I, I, and I went to Sioux City, South Dakota, Iowa border. And there was an old computer company that you might remember called Gateway 2000. The cow spotted boxes. And yeah. I took a job, 100% commission sales, and did it and crushed it and did a lot of great things there. And eventually went out to the Middle East for them and helped set up their international distribution network and came back to Sioux City and didn't like the cold weather anymore. Wasn't having much of a social life. And I got recruited to Dell. And then in 93, I said, all right, I'd rather live in Austin than live in Sioux City. And so packed up and moved down to Austin and started working at Dell. And about six months into my gig at Dell, I got to meet Michael. And I became one of Michael's first executive assistants for a little while. And then from there, he kind of helped shepherd my career and was a great mentor to me throughout the years and kind of moving my way up from product group to marketing to sales and kind of learning all aspects of the business. And now for the last nine years or so, uh, I've been CEO of a B2B marketing and media company called 1105 Media. It's a tremendous company and it's a very niche kind of B2B space, all focusing on things like cloud and analytics and big data and business intelligence and now moving more and more into AI. And AI, as you and I have been talking about, has become a real big passion of mine. I got certified in AI from MIT back in 2012-13 and you know I've done some things on the side with that. And I have a new book that just came out called AI Made Simple and that's available for pre-order now. And Prior to that, I wrote a, a, my first book called Chase Greatness. It's all about a, this concept called enlightened leadership. I wrote that, and you know, I've got an amazing dog. When we first met, it was it was before you you wrote the book. But the the idea of enlightened leadership, um, you talk a lot about, and let's let's start there and and just kind of get into that. Enlightened leadership is a phrase that I kind of decided to use for the book for the lack of something better. And it really resonated with me in terms of what I think needs to happen in the workplace. We're all familiar with servant leadership. Servant leadership started from the church. It was something that Jack Welsh and all these guys started in the, in the mid 80s. It's what I was trained on at Dell in the 90s up to up until recently, right? And servant leadership is, hey, Trent, I work for you. What tool do you need to be successful? How can I, you know, what do you need, right? Mm-hmm. How can I help you achieve your goals? Because when you're achieving your goals, the company's achieving their goals, right? That's yep. servant leadership. I, I work for you. Yep. Simple, to easy to understand. And that's fine. And that's still there, right? I'm still big believer of servant leadership. I just say that because of what's happened, look, you have to look at what's happening in the demographics around the country and around the world. And here are the facts. The facts are in the next 24 months, and when I wrote this book, I wrote this book in 2020, so it was coming in five years. The book was published in November of 2021, four years. So now we're in 2023, almost November of 2023. So now it's two years. In the next two years, the majority of the workforce in the U.S. is going to be Gen Z, millennials, and for the first time, women 
are going to have a slight majority in the workforce. They require a different type of leadership. And I call it enlightened leadership. And enlightened leadership is essentially the take the foundations of, of servant leadership that say, hey, Trent, not only I care about you in the office, like I, I work, I, I am here to support you in the office. Enlightened leadership says, hey, not only am I here to support you in the office, what can I do to help support you outside the office? And that's just all enlightened leadership is. It's what can I do to help support you outside the office as well? Because with people working remote, like you talked about the Zoom thing, and people now, now, now you can work anywhere in the world and get your job done, people require just a different type of leadership. And this new generation that are coming are just a natural evolution of the workplace. We were talking earlier, we're Gen Xers, right? Mm-hmm. We used to be called Degeneration X by the current boomer generation. Right, we used to people told us we my were my favorite wrestling team in WWF. Yeah, was the generation. Yeah, we got to get you know uh, <laughs> yeah, tri- Triple exactly. H and yeah. Shawn Michaels and China and Xbox. Yeah, I knew them all, right? You know, and you know, uh, so uh, but you know that, that's what they used to do these calls, right? And so if you think about that, like they used to call us headbangers, right? Rap's going to ruin our brains. You know what I mean? So it's like every generation has gone through something. It's gone through some sort of adversity from the previous generations. And look, I'm just here to say, like. This new generation, yes, people look at them and there's some, you hear a lot of stuff in the news about wokeness and all these things. I just think it's a natural evolution. And boomers are leaving the workforce. Gen Xers are going to start retiring in the next seven to 10 years. These are the new work, this is the new workforce. And I think it's our responsibility to help coach them up and to show them what it's like to be successful. And if anybody, if you don't like that generation and what they're doing, well, there are kids, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, I think it's our responsibility to try to help guide them in that way. And so that's why I call it enlightened leadership. The, one of the things that I've heard about the, the new generation is, is their, you know, product of baby boomer generation. Baby boomer generation is, is quite famous for living in excess, correct? Like they, they, they spent, they did whatever, they did all those things. And so um, a lot of those Gen Zers, those millennials are saying, hey, I don't need the excess. And also, um, I'd like to live more now versus when I retire one day. Um, how do you think that that mentality is going to affect the productivity in today's world? If they're saying, I, I don't want to, I don't want to spend, do you, do you think they're still working 40, 50 hours or they're working less in terms of that? So this is what, this is what I know, right? Mm-hmm. And my company have a fairly good mix of some boomers. Yep, Gen Xers, Millennials, and my my customer service team and my client service teams, they happen to just be a lot of Gen Xers. Oh, sorry, Gen Zers. And I can tell you, they have incredible worth. There's not a single person in my company that I can point to that, that I see as having a work ethic challenge that's not putting in the hours that they need to put in to be successful in the business. And here's the thing, my company is 97% remote. Mm-hmm. You know what my turnover rate this year has been? Voluntary turnover attrition in my company this year. Probably really low. One person. Yeah. Out of 140 employees, I've lost one person. My attrition rate is almost zero. Because I look at it slightly different. Do I care if the job gets done at 10 a.m. or 10 p.m.? No, as long as the job gets done. And so for me, for what's worked in my company, is being allowing people to have that flexibility. And that allows people to stay. And my bottom line has benefited from it. We've had, since COVID, we've had three plus years of record profitability growth. And and I don't look at, I don't, EBITDA is great. I look at free cash flow. Our free cash flow over the last three years has been up 
so much better than the previous years. It's it's unheard of how much cash we're generating now as a business. On that same note, and going back to the Jack Welsh of the bottom 5% getting rid of that every year, um, do you believe that there could be some turnover that you're missing because you can't see, you don't have the full visibility of who's performing and who's not performing? If I didn't have the metrics for people, probably, but I feel like we've got great metrics. I've got an amazing management team. We've got great KPIs and OKRs set across the company. We see our we see our customer attrition that we have. We see the the return rate of our customers. We see our engagement scores with our webinars and all of our legion things that we produce at our company, and they continue to be very strong. See. Now, are there folks that are maybe just it's hey I can work from Florida. It's easy, whatever. Sure. I mean, of 140 employees, are there probably 14 or 15 employees in there that maybe, yeah, it's just a job. I don't care. But it's easy and whatever. And, you know, maybe they've got three side hustles. Yeah. You know, th- I'm sure. I mean, th- there's no way for me to know exactly what's happening for everybody. But I'm also not going to be the guy that's going to go put in software on people's laptops to see how many times they're hitting their keyboard and then fire them if they're not hitting their keyboard enough throughout the day, right? I'm not going to make them turn on their cameras. I built a lot of transparency and trust into my organization, and it's what's working for me. Yeah. It may not work for others, and, not, and I'm, not here, I'm not here to pontificate to anybody to say, hey, look, my way is the best way. All I know is this is what works for me. It's what works for my organization. And for us, it's been a home run. Yeah, that, that, that's cool to hear. I think that so many times people get snippets. For example, they, they read an article and they say, oh, okay, yep. We should be remote, or we should do those this different thing, but without the the KPIs, the key performance indicators, uh, those types of metrics, you set yourself up for failure, and so you see that that flip side of things, right? And and, and I think maybe talk a little bit about that focus in business in terms of this is our goal and this is where we're we're going, because I think that companies that have maybe been around or that are starting up that don't that are in business to be in business, but don't understand the ultimate goal on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis, struggle a lot more with this new era that we're, we're living in versus their, their dad had a machine shop and their employees came in every day and grinded away and they're right. really good. And the, 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 the metric was on time delivery, you know, so that it can go onto a Boeing space or Boeing airplane or something. But now today with all these different businesses, talk a little bit about how you create that accountability across a huge organization of 140 employees. Yeah, so one of the things I've learned to do this right is you have to have really good, transparent communication. And the one of the ways I do that at the corporate level, so the way we're set up is I'm the CEO of the corporate holding company. And I've got the five companies underneath it. That's not why it's called 1105, by the way, but it just happens to be five companies. So the five companies underneath it with three divisional presidents, essentially, who run those P&Ls, who run those businesses that report into me. And then we have a matrix organization that cuts across. HR, finance, IT, all those things. Every quarter, we do a recognition event across the whole company. Everybody gets together. We talk about who's the top 1105-er or the top manager in that particular division or group. We talk about the top salesperson. We talk about, we have this thing called the High Five Award, which is peer-to-peer recognition. Mm-hmm. Hey, I'm Rajiv, and I want to recognize Josh for doing, Josh is over there, by the way, who you know who's done a great job putting on the help to produce these podcasts. And da-da-da. so we do that. So we do a lot of peer-to-peer recognition. After the recognition, we look at you know the top sales performers, and then we get into each individual division. How are they perform- performing? Up, down, sideways. What's working? What's not working? What what was what worked in Q? 
We just did Q2 two weeks ago. So what worked in Q2? What didn't work in Q2? What are we looking forward to in Q3? And so we're very transparent in our, in our communication. Now that tends to be a little bit more higher level view of things because it's, you know, I can't sit there for three hours and give them all this data dump. So instead, so we give them enough, it's about an hour long. And then from there, each individual group president goes down and breaks down into mini town halls for their individual teams. At my level, I talk about, for example, open enrollment just started, right? Yep. And so we got new new insurance coming and all that. We go through open enrollment. We go through all these different things. We talk about there's a huge push in trolling my company for AI. And, we're, and everybody right now in the company is embracing AI like you can't believe. We've done, can you believe it? I've done over 300 hours of AI training at my company already. I've created an, an office of AI where I'm the chief AI officer and I hired a VP. I promoted somebody internally, a lady named Becky. She's awesome. And she's going to be my VP of AI. Well, not going to be. She is the VP of AI for the whole company for now implementing AI tools across the whole company, everything from ChatGPT to a whole bunch of other different type of plugins and different tools that are out there, Zapier and all these other things are out there. So we talk about those things, why it's important, how it can help, how Microsoft Copilot, when that comes out, why that's going to be helpful for them. And we can talk about AI stuff as well. And then from there, we get into those mini town halls where people get, can get specific, granular about what's happening specifically in their business unit division. What's working, what's not working, what's happening with events, what's not happening with events. Events for us is, you know, you're going to Taylor Swift tonight. There's going to be 90,000 screaming people at Taylor Swift. And people will go to these events and, this, and I'm going to go see Oppenheimer with my son tonight. And it's going to be full. It's going to be packed. Well, those types of face-to-face type of events are back. But B2B events, where it's education and training type conferences like we do, they're not back because mm-hmm. they're saying, hey, just do it on Zoom. Why do you have to go to the event? Why do you have to spend money to go to this? So we get into granular detail about, okay, why, you know, how can we change that? How do we change perception? How do we help those things? So the bottom line is, is that we do those things and we can go down and we, then we go over each, then every, then each president goes over each kind of area's performance and what, what's, what's, and we do this simple stoplight format type of things, green, yellow, red, green, it's on track, yellow, it's kind of just meandering a little bit, but it's there. It's not down or up. It's just kind of there and red, it's down. And how to, and our ultimate goal is to get people to turn the red, reds to yellows and yellows to greens. And then from there, just react and take care of customers. And But I'll tell you, the best thing we did was back when COVID hit, and it was kind of started a little bit before was, what's that saying, you know, when you get on an airplane and the flight attendant says, in case of an emergency, masks are going to fall from the ceiling. Mm-hmm. They tell you to put your own mask first. I'm not talking about COVID masks. So yeah. I don't want to cause a problem here. Yeah. I'm talking about those oxygen masks they tell you to put on, right? They tell you to put yours on first before you can help the person sitting next to you. Because if something happens to you, you can't help the person sitting next to you. Yeah. And so one of the big changes we made was I decided back right around the middle of COVID, we're going to shift our focus and we're going to make our internal employees our number one customer, period, end of story. Nothing else matters. For me, the business unit presidents, you know, the, the support teams, our, our number one customer is going to be our internal employees, number one, period, end of story. If I can take care of them, if I can show them gratitude and resilience or grit, mm-hmm. have that right form of empathy and accountability and transparency for them, they'll take care of the external customer, no problem. And that's, and that's what's really allowed this whole thing to work. And that became the foundation for Enlightened Leadership. This episode is brought to you by Entrepreneur Magazine and Entrepreneur.com, the one place to go if you want to start, build, and grow your business. For somebody that came out of a mentorship from a great leader like a, like a Michael Dell or a CEO, what do you think was his biggest strength, biggest weakness, and what do you think you learned that made you do something different? That's a great question. And I tell this to everybody who asks me that same, because I get this question a lot. Michael's number one greatest quality was he hired people smarter than him. 
He gave the tools their job and he got out of their way. He was never the smartest person in the room. Mm-hmm. Never. That was awesome to see. And Branson I t- said the same to us and Necker. And I take that with me everywhere I go. Yeah. I'm, this is my th- third time being a CEO. I take that with me to every single company I go to. I don't want, I can't be the smartest person in the room. Otherwise, they just look at you for answers. And yeah. I can't have that. I, I'm hiring them for a reason, right? It's like, it's like Steve Jobs said, we hire smart, I hire smart people not for me to tell you what to do, I prefer you to tell me what to do, yeah. right? That's what Steve Jobs said. And so, and so that was Michael Dell's, I think, number one quality. Look, I think one of the, I'll tell you one of the best stories of Michael Dell was this. So I was, so after I got done being his executive assistant, I started working with this guy named John and we were looking to launch an SMB group within Dell. Amazing guy, John, we're still friends. And at the time, we were getting our butts kicked by Gateway and some other, you know, companies that are now long gone, Compaq, which just now became, which HP ended up buying yep. everything. And we were just really struggling kind of in this small mid-market space. You know, what was happening, the reason why was because dealers and resellers were fulfilling that market and we just didn't have the footprint to fulfill it, right? Because we we're a bunch of inside salespeople and sitting in Austin, right? Or tech mm-hmm. support. And we, did, we couldn't fulfill, like we can come on site to Bryson here, right? And take care of your 50 employees, but the local guy across the street could do a piece of cake, right? Yeah. And so I remember we went over to Michael's office and he had an office kind of similar to here. In fact, Michael loved to write on, he had glass and he'd write on just like you do over here and people can't see it. And it's funny because I was looking at this, remind me of Michael. And he sat there and we walked in and sat down and John said, well, Michael, we can't do this and we can't do that. We can't, we can't, we can't, we can't. Michael stood up, went to the, to the glass, wrote the word can't in red, put a big red circle around it and put a line through it. And he said, when you blankety blanks, and I don't want to say it, yeah. get that word out of your vocabulary, then you can come back and talk to me. Yeah. And that was that was a real eye-opener for me that anything is possible. You just got to keep reiterating, reiterating, reiterating to get there. Now, it might be too expensive. It might take too long, but it's possible. And at that point, we make the decision. His biggest weakness from your perspective that you learned from? You know, I don't know if it was necessarily his biggest weakness. I think the biggest weakness of that era, per se, was this whole idea of empathy. Right? We, you and I grew up in a world where if you have a problem with your, if you have a problem, and you need to go to your boss, you come with three solutions. Yeah. You remember that whole thing? Yeah. Oh, you better go talk. Oh, if you want to go talk to Brent, you better have three solutions. And I think what really changed for me, and I think that was always a problem, because you, if you're the president of a company, or if you're the leader of a team, whether you're you know, Lincoln Riley or Phil Jackson or whatever, right? You're there for a reason. And you're there because you've got an experience that you might be able to help. And so I was never a big fan of that. I mean, I had to do it because that's the way I was trained. But it felt like I was making stuff up. Like I'd have one good solution, I'd make up two solutions just to go talk to them. Got you it. know what I mean? Yeah. And I thought that was a waste of my time, a waste of their time. So I changed my thought leadership and my leadership and that thinking was, look, my door's always open. You know, your door's always open? No, my door's really always open. You don't have to come with me with three solutions. You might be stuck, and maybe my experience might help you get unstuck. Let's brainstorm. Let's talk it through. You know, maybe you've got this idea that you really want to run with, but you're worried about, you know, you think you're through the right way, then come and talk to me. Let's, let's, let's talk it through. Let me be your partner in this whole thing. So I think the empathy side of thing that we grew up in the late 80s and the 90s and maybe part early part of the 2000s, Need, needed to shift, and at least in my feel like in my company, it's really shifted. So we we don't we don't put that criteria in anybody. You can go talk to anybody, and if you're stuck, just say, "Hey Trent, I'm stuck. The I need surpri- your help." The surprising thing about that is, um, 
you could just put into AI, give me three well, solutions. Well, now I can. Yeah, now I can. I can go to ChatGPT and say, hey. Yeah, but the key there is that you got to write. Where's, where's yeah. the other two solutions? Well, the, so. the, well you, just go to, you just go to ChatGPT and say, hey, ChatGPT, that's only one. Give me two more, right? Yeah. It'll give you two more. But, you know, the thing, the thing about the AI stuff, you know, it's, it's just, you know, it's gonna it's crazy, right? I mean, it's going to revolutionize it, Because we talked about this a couple podcasts ago with Nancy. Um if you were to say the haves and the have-nots, meaning the have-adopted and the have-nots adopted in, we'll say, 2025 on the AI, how much of a divide do you think it is? And maybe you even share your um, your, your Yum! brand story on, in terms of the pizza, in terms of just what AI did back then and, and where, it's, where you think it's going. Well, I think the first part of the question is the haves and have-nots on AI. This is what I know. Well, first of all, I don't have a crystal ball. All I know, all I, what I do know, is that the people who understand and use AI to, if, if you're, let me back up, if you're not using AI and you don't want to understand AI and you're afraid of AI, the only way your job's going to get affected is you're going to get replaced by someone who does. So just be aware of that. So that's, that's what I do know. And by the way, that's white collar jobs all the way down to even blue collar jobs. Couldn't agree more. Right? So that's number one. Now, in terms of you mentioned the whole young brand thing. So, back after I was I was like in between after an, between an exit and starting at eleven oh five, and I had gotten certified in AI uh, from MIT in business, and I somehow I can't remember now exactly how it happened, but I got introduced to some folks over at um, who were doing some things with Pizza Hut, and they were having a little bit of a problem, and there and. The type of AI they were having a problem with back then is, you'll know now, as your listeners were here, is machine learning, predictive analytics, predicting what's going to happen. The chat GPT stuff is called generative intelligence, right? It's where you don't, it's, it's learning from it by itself. Whereas machine learning, you need, you need the human interaction to train the algorithm. There, it's garbage in, garbage out, right? So if you want to do predictive analytics here at Bryson, for example, but you're using a whole bunch of flawed insurance data, you're going to have a bunch of garbage outputs and it won't mean anything to you. But if you've got really good clean data, you'll, it's going to be a home run. So what was happening was essentially this. In the Midwest, they were having a problem that after high school football games, especially after the team wins, after your team wins, people flood out of the high school stadium, which is you know thousands of people potentially, right? Mm-hmm. And they hit all the local restaurants. Well, it just so happened that people like Pizza at Taco Bell and KFC and pizza was, pizza, pizza was more popular and they didn't have enough pepperoni or they ran out of cheese or whatever the case might be. So we helped them kind of build out predictive algorithms that and we took all the training data by looking at five years history of high school football games and scores and win-ins and losses and zip codes where it was all happening. All this data got put together and they went out and built these algorithms and to be able to now go predict when, um, you know, when, when, you know, when these games were over, how much pepperoni you needed to have or what staff you needed to have or what, how open you had to stay late. Now that was back in 2013, so that's 10 years ago. What they're doing with it now, I have no idea. I don't know if they just took it and whatever. And now, now a lot of these predictive analytics things have been integrated into a whole bunch of other platforms. Maybe they've got it integrated into maybe their point of sale display now or whatever the case may be. But we gave them the foundational yeah. algorithms of what to do. And then from there, we worked with them in the Southeast. What was happening was hurricanes. Well, when hurricanes happen, you have hurricane watch or tornado watch. People don't want to leave their homes. So what happened there was that they didn't have no drivers because people are ordering pizza. You could order a pizza and it might take two hours to come. And well, by the time it's cold and soggy. So same basic concept, worked with NOAA, got almanacs, got all the data, put it in and created an algorithm that said, hey, during hurricane watch, 
you'll see an uptake of this. You need to have three more drivers on staff to handle the increase of people. So, so that's using AI. But this type of machine learning AI stuff is around us all the time. We don't realize it. You watch Netflix, that's all machine learning. Trent, you've watched this, we recommend this. Yeah. Amazon, you and I were looking at a product today for Amazon for ankle support, right? At the bottom, it said, people bought this product, also bought this product. That's all yeah. AI, right? Siri is AI. So all that stuff, so all, that's all machine learning AI stuff that we're, you know, I have a Tesla, it's a self-driving, te- the self-driving mode. That's all AI learning pattern predicting AI stuff. If you're a, a business owner, an entrepreneur, and you were to take one thing to leverage AI, what would be like that first starter thing that you would say, you just gave a great case study of something that worked for, for a major brand, right? If you're a, a small entrepreneur, what's the one thing you'd say, like, this is what you need to get on and try? Well, look, I, th- I think it, I don't know if there's one right answer, but I will tell you this. And, and what I've been finding out is that the biggest challenge to adopting AI in the business is fear. Mm-hmm. CEOs are afraid. And they're afraid only because they don't understand it. Employees are afraid they're going to all lose their jobs. There's a lot of doom and gloom. Oh, my God, Goldman says 300 million jobs are going to be affected. Well, when I hear that, I say, yeah, they could be affected. It doesn't mean they're lost. And if you think back to every time we have a major technical revolution, when the first PCs hit the desk, oh, my God, all these people are going to lose their jobs. Well, they did. They got retrained in something better. Well, then the Internet exploded. Well, all these people are going to lose their jobs. Well, some of them did, but they all got retrained to something better. E-commerce. Oh my God! All these, every single retailer on the planet is going to go out of business. Well, some retailers closed, like some, so, so some malls, like this, yeah. with the exception of maybe set where we are, South Coast. But all these kind of enclosed malls, a lot of them suffered. But Spectrum, Fashion Island, these areas, they're doing pretty well, right? Yeah. Brands like I'm wearing Vori pants. You're wearing Lulu. Whatever. You know what I mean? It's like you know we've got you got all these cool brands are popping up all over the place and they're going like crazy, right? So, you know. They train got something better. Mobile. Oh my God. There's more. I mean, there's more power in the iPhone 13, iPhone 12, I think, than there was in the entire Moon mission. For the people at home, I'm not wearing like Viore, like like. No, but I wear Viore. leggings right now. I, I mean, but, Lulu but, leggings. But these are I Viore, just want to make sure that yeah, you know, these are Viore pants. I have a question on that on that same thing. I feel like sometimes when employees or team members are coming to me with AI information, it's almost like they're embarrassed, like. Oh, I got this on ChatGPT. So how do I make it feel like it didn't come on ChatGPT so that I'm not a fake or whatever? Do you, do you ever see yeah. that out there? And and kind of what's your advice around that? It's like, for me, I'm like, why? It's it's awesome. Better, it's a bit better than anything that you've written look, lately. So so here's the thing. The best look, and hopefully people understand that. I look at this as not to me generative intelligence and artificial and this whole AI thing that's exploded over the last seven months. Don't think of it as artificial intelligence. Think of it as augmenting intelligence. Mm-hmm. That's the way you should look at it. Like if if I have an employee who comes to me and says, "Look, I use ChatGPT for this," I give him a high five. The reason being is because if they didn't use ChatGPT, it probably would have taken them maybe six, eight, ten, twenty man hours to get this job done. Now they got it done in six minutes potentially, right? They can now go work on other things. Instead of me, some of them might be working overtime to get something done. Well, now they don't have to work overtime anymore, right? This whole concept of burnout starts to go away because. You know, Microsoft's going to integrate this stuff into everything. Teams, Excel, Word, PowerPoint, all that stuff's going to be there. Mid-journeys, uh, Adobe's integrating you know, all the imagery work into their Adobe license using Firefly. You know, so all that stuff's going to be there. And Google's got Bard, which we'll see what happens there. But look, all that stuff is designed to make the people's work easier, their life easier. And so for me, 
I look at it as giving you a partner. If I could give you your own assistant sitting next to you to help you do this job, why not use it? I mean, absolutely. I think I've two examples, I think, from a reel recently this morning. I had somebody that said, Oh my gosh, me and my husband still need to do a trust. We haven't done a trust. Who, you know, I know I've been referred trust attorneys or whatever in the past. I said, Just go on ChatGPT. Just write out exactly what you want, then continue to ask it questions, questions, questions. Either A, go have an attorney sign off on it and save all that time and money, or B, it's better than what you got today. Um, I think there's a great quote on Atomic Habits. I don't know if you've read that book, but I I love the book, which is um, doing less of what you wanted to do is better than doing nothing at all. And so her dying with no will, no trust, nothing um, is worse than her having something that's been notarized that she found and she created on on ChatGPT. And and maybe she goes, I still need to go see an attorney for whatever later. But um, that was like such a no-brainer. She just did something that's been weighing on her mind for a year in terms of, yeah. uh, of what's going on there. And then the second is, you know, I think I was telling you, I, me and the kids going on our vacation was, hey, we're going to make these hotels, plan me out, you know, eight to 10 miles a day on a run in Croatia, which I, I wouldn't even know about. And so for me, it makes life so much simpler and faster. But I think that people are people are legitimately afraid of like, oh, am I fraudulent by using this? And, and you put it so eloquently when you say it's augmenting intelligence. It's, it's actually showing somebody... You know, it's making somebody look look more. I have really intelligent people that English is a second language. All of a sudden, they put that same paragraph into ChatGPT, and it it's matching. The grammar is now finally matching their intelligence yeah. level. Um, I mean, we even had I think at a YPO event, we did a um, a Wonderlic test at, at the and and I know there's some really smart people that scored awful, but it was English was their second language, and so they've come from. India or Mexico or wherever, and in their their first generation, and they really struggled on that Wonderlic test. And a lot of it's just the stuff that we learned in, in English and, and that sort of thing. And so, by putting that same concepts, you know, topics, their ideas in there, and then cleaning up the grammar, it's it it changes the game so so dramatically. Yeah, I mean, you talk, going back to your the example of the of the will, right? So I talked to a fellow YPO yesterday. And he wanted to do a bill of sale. And he asked me, Rajiv, can I put it in a chat GPT? I said, look, put it in a chat GPT and let's see what happens. He does it. Spit out a bill of sale for yeah. something that he's doing. I go, look. He goes, well, should I show a lawyer? I go, look, you should always show a lawyer. Yeah. But here's the thing. Instead of spending $10,000 on getting the bill of sale done, now you spend $2,000 on having them review the bill of sale that you've got now outputted, right? Yeah. If anything, you're still going to pay a little bit of money for the lawyer, but you save yourself eight grand. What do you want to do with that eight grand? You know, so that's... So that's the beauty of this whole thing. And that's and that's essentially why I wrote the book, right? And we were talking earlier, I wrote this new book called AI Made Simple, and it's available pre-order. But it's, to me, this is it. I mean, this, there's nothing, this is the biggest technological revolution we're going to see in our lifetime. And it, to me, it, this, it's that important. I, I, I couldn't agree more. If you were to go down society a little bit, and you were to go... Um, Chat GPT, you know, how how capable it is of changing lives and, and, and fortunes and all that. And then you were to go inner city. Let's we're sitting here in Long Beach, where if you drive four miles that way, you're on Naples Island with million dollar homes. You drive a mile that way, and you're in every song they ever sung about in in the '90s, right? Um, at least the stuff that I listened to. 
how do we empower inner city kids to leverage this change to change their life? Like, do you, do you see that the correlation there? Yeah, and I, th- I think it's already happening, right? I'll give you an example. So I have a friend of mine. So I'm on the board of a, of a nonprofit that's it's in San Pedro, so mm-hmm. not too far from here. And it supports, it helps people with, who are domestic violence yep. issues. Victims, right? yep. Victims and survivors, right? And on that, I've been on that board now for a little over a year, and I, I met this doctor, and she spends half her time in the inner city. And you're now seeing doctors starting to use these types of tools because the more they can use these types of tools, they can start to give more and more time back to the patient. Mm-hmm. To me, I think AI in healthcare is potentially the biggest revolutionary change that you could probably see of, of all these tools. Because the more we can make predictive modeling out of these things, the more doctors can now spend time with patients. I think you're, you know, in the cover of Time Magazine right now, the cover of Time Magazine is seven women from a village in India using AI tools. Literally from a village in India on their phones using, so cool. using a $50 Android smartphone to use AI. So it's, it's happening. I think you're seeing inner city youth. Now, people talk about education. What's going on? Oh, my God. Here's the thing. Just like any tool, you have to embrace the tool. If anything, it's going to move. It's going to education will start to move away from, like, show me your work to let's discuss the work. Yeah, let's discuss the output. Let's have good debate on whatever you on politics, right, or whatever the case might be. Let's have that debate. Let's have that discussion, right? It level sets everybody. So I think it's just a matter of time. I mean, the beauty, like in my company, for example, I pay for ChatGPT four. Yeah, because I want my team. I pay for of my 140 employees, 104 get get the get the paid version. I pay for it every we have, month. We have it here too. I yeah. think that. Um, so I pay for that. So just the, like you do. The amount of time that can be saved on benchmarking and, and concepts and yeah, ideas yeah. is is mind blowing in terms of what that is. But but you know as we talk about building a better world all together, and we, we think about those those women in India in terms of how they're doing it, or the kids at the Boys and Girls Club and, and how they're leveraging it. To me, this is like that that idea of like, all right, if we, if we can empower them to leverage this technology, this is their way way to, to change the game. Um, but there's still so many people that just are going to put their head in the sand. Yeah, but I mean, they were like that when the internet came out too. Yeah. Right? They were like that. It's just a fad, right? Isn't that what they said? Yeah. Well, like, <laughs> I mean, I think, like, if, take, take a look at things like climate change, right? There's still a lot of people who think it's fake. Fine. Or COVID was fake. Fine. Whatever. I'm not here to get politics, but political. But at the end of the day is I think AI is going to really be able to provide. Look, it rained in Irvine this morning. <laughs> I was telling you that, right? Yeah. Arizona is under the craziest heat wave you've ever seen, right? Maui is on fire, right? We talked about that, right, today. So it's, that's what's happening in the world. And I think tools like AI are going to allow for modeling to go out there to help try to solve some of these major world problems that we have. And being, and if you think about it, it's because computing power is becoming cheaper every day. The reason why ChatGPT 3 and 3.5 and 4 are available today is because it's cheaper to run. Back a few years ago when they first launched ChatGPT 3, it was like $117 per, per query or something like that. But now it's down to like the pennies and it's going to just get cheaper and cheaper over time. And so if you think about computing power, back in the you know 70s, there was like a thousand transistors on one, on one little CPU. Now there's a million, you know, in the next, by, the, by 2030, there might be 100 million so there's gonna be more power in your laptop or your iPhone than there's gonna be in the entire human brain capability, right? But like with anything, there's fear, right? There's a Superman effect, mm-hmm. right? The Superman effect is, 
what if Superman was raised by the cartel? <laughs> what would be happening, right? Yeah. So there's going to be bad AI out there, right? There's going to be bad actors who are going to use AI for bad things. You already hear about deep fakes and, right? But you're going to need good AI to beat bad AI. And those there's going to be whole new industries spawned, just like there was whole new when Think about how many thousands of apps are now available. Those are all new companies that started, right, on your phone. Think about Uber didn't exist. Airbnb didn't exist, right? All these things didn't exist, right? So so there's going to be whole new companies that are responding. In fact, if you look at it, every almost every dollar in Silicon Valley right now is being invested towards AI and longevity sciences. Well, it's, um, to your point on the healthcare, you know, in our business, uh, being on the healthcare side, we've seen just double-digit increases for, uh, I, I'll, we'll go on 10 years now, slightly less, slightly more, depending on the year. And yet the efficiency in the last year, year and a half is, is gotten you know, through the roof in terms of their ability. A, a doctor being able to see you for longer, have the notes sent somewhere, um, have it actually analyzed and, and so that... You know, my father's had cancer 12 times. I think today he's at Cedars, tomorrow he's at St. John's, somewhere else. He's you know, he's going to see 12 different doctors to tell them probably the same thing that they could have sent or or leveraged on AI that, that will be happening soon. I think that the, you know, and somebody's paying for every one of those doctor's visits. Somebody's paying for every one of those, um, you know, treatments. The, on, you know, the oncologist wants to do one thing. The surgeon wants to, to operate and that sort of thing. And so now it's being able to spit out the analytics. It says, no, uh, we're not just going to let whoever you see do the take care of it their way because that's our specialty. Healthcare companies need to start to go, all right, so here's what the analytics are saying. Here's going to be the most effective option for you. And here's how we go. And, and when you talk about the cost of healthcare and affecting companies and in our entire, you know, GDP, like that, that's, that's a big opportunity there. Yeah. I mean, think about it this way, right? We talked about self-driving cars, right? Self-driving cars are slowly starting to roll out, right? In the next 20 years, I would imagine probably every car on this road will be a self-driving car at some level in 20 years. Mm-hmm. Well, what does that mean? Less accidents, right? Less trips to the emergency room, less strain on the healthcare system, less money being spent to take care of people who don't have insurance. So there's going to be just a huge domino effect of all this technology for the better. You know, talk, we talked earlier about health and living a healthier lifestyle. You talked about the hike for or the running thing for Croatia. I mean, the beauty of this stuff is I can go right now to ChatGPT and write me a, a plan that's high in protein based on my macros, workout plan, whatever the case might be, to get fit, to lose 20 pounds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and follow it. How much water do I need? How much protein do I need? What what fruit and vegetables are best? Give me that. Now, the limitation of ChatGPT today, that's only through 2021, mm-hmm. through November of 2021. It doesn't go anything beyond that. So it doesn't know anything that happened last year or so yeah. far this year. Now, ChatGPT5 supposedly might come out towards the end of the year or, or next year. That will bring it current. And that's what I think you'll see more of a more advanced thing. But think about just the, just the paid version of ChatGPT today, you get code interpreter and plugins, and plugins are those apps. And you know, there's you, you talked about your trip to Croatia. You go get the right plugins, whether an Expedia plugin or whatever you want to do. Not only will it give you the the itinerary, it'll also buy the tickets for you. Yeah, it's crazy. It's nuts, right? And it'll also make the hotel it'll also make the hotel reservation for you as well as make the dinner reservation for you. So a travel agent either becomes more efficient and uses this and says X, Y, and Z right now, or they go out of business. It's, it's, it's one of those things, right? You, you got to use the tools that are given yeah. to you, right? But that's true for anything, right? When, when I mean, when remember when MapQuest came out? Yeah. 
you don't have to go to AAA anymore and get the trip ticket or whatever, right? I mean, yeah. or the the Thomas guide, or the Thomas guide, yeah, right? They all went away. To, to yeah. The so the, my point is, it's just natural evolution of these things. So, so just like we talked about the natural evolution of these technologies, I'm just saying that that's what the workplace is going to be like. You can just a natural evolution of the workplace too. And so, and if you figure out how to augment the intelligence of your staff, you're going to hit a home run. You'll be fine. If you yeah. don't, you're going to have a problem. That's. Shifting gears a little bit, um, I think one of the most unique things you see is um, th- three generations of success. And, and, yeah. and, and you talk a little bit about um, your father kind of came over based on a, an ability to come study over here. You're born here. You obviously have success. And now you have two kids that are that are thriving, coming out of college and that sort of thing. If you were to look from the skill sets or the values that your father gave you that maybe he had from his parents down to you, down to your children. What do you think creates that three generation grit? Because most companies fail after the second generation. Most families start to come apart. What do you think it is that's unique about your family that that you would pass on to others? That's a great question. So my dad came here when he was 18 from a small village in India outside of New Delhi. And he came over on the John F. Kennedy Student Exchange Program. And he came here and he went to Cal Poly Pomoda, studied engineering, and just built his life here, right? Mm-hmm. And he did this best to give me a life, my brother and my sister a life, and full of gratitude for that. I would tell you, I think the number one thing I learned from my dad was just hard work and just doing everything you could to to take care of those around you or mm-hmm. the probably the two biggest things I, le- I learned from my dad. I get, I have way more satisfaction of seeing my employees happy and surprising them with on the spot bonuses or whatever, whatever I'm doing or giving money to the nonprofits and seeing how that affects people's lives than I do in getting a big order from IBM or whatever. Right. And to how me, does that it, translate to your kids? So they see it in action. And Got I it. think one of the best things for me was YPO for that. Right, yeah. joining YPO, being around that. Because I have not met a single YPOer that goes out of their way to throw their wealth in your face. Yeah. Right? I don't think I've met a single one. And that's great. Every most uh, 95% of them are incredibly humble and they're incredibly supportive. And we've done some amazing trips around the world. I mean, I remember doing a trip with the kids and we went to this orphanage in India and I think the boys were 10 and 8 at the time. We went to this orphanage in India. It was an all-girl orphanage in, outside of New Delhi in India. And Trent, it's such a sad story. You know, there's still problems in the villages of India, right? Infanticide is a problem because they want boys to take care of the fields. And if you have a girl, unfortunately, they don't want that girl. Mm-hmm. And so that's a problem. And so, um, And so this orphanage goes out and says... Don't do anything to the girl. Yeah, we'll take G- give the baby to us or g- give your daughter to us. We'll take care. We'll take care of her. We'll feed her. We'll clothe her. We'll, we'll you know we'll help her. Right. And I, I don't want your listeners to think, oh my god, what a backward country. Just things happen in these sometimes in these yeah. in these countries, right? It's just what it is. And and so we went to this orphanage, and the boys spent the whole day there, and it was so I think it was so eye opening for them and. You know, they, they fed the girls, you know, they, they made they helped to make food for the girls. They fed the girls. They, they, they hung out with them. They, they kind of played with them. They, we took them all kinds, we took them 
you know, pajamas and bedding and books and, you know, all kinds of things. And they were there and they were so young and see this stuff and being able to show them, look, we do, I do fairly well. You know, we, we do everything we can to provide them a really good life. And we've used YPO to go see, well, you and I have talked about this, we've used YPO to go see a Manchester United game, right? Yeah. In, in the owner's box. And so, but to see the other side of it and be able to do these things and show them these things and show them, and they're, they're both Eagle Scouts, by the way. And so they both became Eagle Scouts. They both did their projects. And they both have, have been to different parts of the world to be able to get back and help the communities. So on a society thing, you have India, which is, you know, has extreme wealth and extreme poor, right? You have America, which has a, a widening gap as well. From your perception, because you don't see a lot of struggling Indians in America, right? Like they're all really hardworking, some of the smartest people I know, maybe because they came over from the college program or what, whatever that is. How do you see us starting to close those gaps in these various countries and say, like, how do we get those that are being abandoned because they can't work the fields or whatever? Like, like some days I feel like as I look on TV and I see a, a store being ransacked, a Nordstrom's rack got ransacked in Long Beach here today. I'm like, you're buying fake purses or you're stealing fake purses. What? You just you just robbed an entire store and got like two hundred bucks for for what like humanity is kind of eroding from that standpoint. But what can we take from just that little microcosm of like those that immigrated from India to America all seem to be thriving so well? How do we put that same concept into back into India and into America from those that are born here? Well, I think in India, it's just a matter. Of, it's it's happening, you know. But when you got one point five billion people, it takes time, mm-hmm. right? You know, Apple is starting to move more. For example, manufacturing to India, mm-hmm. more and more brands are moving to India, right? So the more, it's just like what happened in China, you're now starting to see what happened in China, in, in India. And after India, I think you're going to see the explosion start to happen more and more in Africa. In fact, Africa is already starting to to grow in parts of Africa. You're seeing it. So more and more jobs are going to come, right? You know, India's got to work on its some of its ports and its ability to do shipping out of India because the reason why China works so well is because it's easier to come to the West Coast from Shanghai, yeah. from those port cities, right? India adds an extra week or two in shipping. So India's got to do a better job of figuring some of those things. There's just distance and time. So how yeah. do you do that? And so, look, I just think it's a matter of time. I, I think, you know, India in the next 20 years is going to start to see that gap start to close. The other thing to keep in mind in India is that there's no, like, sports industry in India, Right, it doesn't exist. There's like cricket, mm-hmm. you know, and some other things, but a country of 1.5 billion people might, might produce only two or three gold medalists if you're lucky. Yeah, right. You know, there's a joke in the Indian community that the spelling bee is the Indian Super Bowl. Yeah, right. And so, it's just you know, education is a huge premium. It's, it's a real premium in India, right? You know, um, Indian parents here in the U.S. want all their kids to be doctors or engineers. I'm neither, but I think I did all right. Yeah. I don't know how we're going to fix, you know, our other societies, you know, society ills here. All I can tell you is that I think the more we can give people opportunities, the more we can focus on education, the more we can help make education a priority in these inner cities and bridge some of that gap and help educate people, not just in inner cities, but in, in the outer part of the cities as well, some of the rural communities. That's what's going to help bridge that gap. I think education is the great equalizer. And I think India is a really good example. By the way, it's not just India. We talked earlier about, oh, yeah. I'm on the board of three, three AI companies. And one of the companies I'm on the board of, they do all their heavy lifting in Romania. Those people are amazing, man. They're the, some of the smartest mathematician, algorithm, AI engineers in the world, 
right? Look at the Philippines now, right? Thanks to outsourcing, the Philippines are are a hotbed now of growth and opportunity, right? Yeah. Same thing you have in Vietnam. A lot of outsourcing is now being pushed from China into Vietnam. So you're starting to see that as well. So the more and more jobs can go globally. And the other thing I think, the more we can think about how our immigration policies here, the more we can think about how to really provide that good, strong education to the inner cities. I think it's a combination of all those things. Yeah. Good. Um, the one thing that we finish this podcast off every time is you get to ask me a question. So what, what do you got for me today? Now, you didn't tell me I was going to do that, but I thought yeah. of a real good question. I got one. I'm not going to ask you the embarrassing question. But uh, what is your biggest regret? My biggest regret? Um, in business, it's probably thinking, um, which I, I'm amazed that you have all these different things going on. My biggest regret is that I found that my best investment is in my own company. Nobody's going to work harder than me. Nobody's going to stay up at night more than I will um, thinking about how to make better or work harder or whatever that is. And so I think early on in my career, I thought like, oh, I'm going to diversify and I'm going to put money here and I'm going to invest in these people. And I was always let down because I'm like, here I am giving you my hard-earned money for to go you know, chase this project. And you're not, you're not. You're not grinding like like I grind, and so I think from a business standpoint, bet I always bet on myself. Now I, I've learned I, I'd rather bet on myself, and obviously we both know people that we would bet on a hundred times over, right? But but I, I think that that was one. Um, from a kids, no, no regrets there. I, I I've I've invested a hundred percent into like making sure that they've done they've they've kind of launched right and i'm so proud of them um and so that that's pretty good um and so i i I think that i i don't really have a lot of regrets i have a really good life and i've kept good balance my biggest regrets are when i just come down on myself for not being focused enough like when i when i lose focus or i'm um trying to do too much that's not the right stuff that that's those are my regrets so other than taylor swift what are you excited about for the future Ooh, Taylor, Taylor Swift tonight. Just more the the smile on my daughter's face for that, but because um, I care less. Uh, for the future, I think um, I think our company's in a really good spot right now. My kids are loving college. They're they're thriving right now. They're healthy, um, so that's fun to watch. And then I think now it's like that next chapter is like, what, where's the legacy get built? Um, you know, what's the you know what's the eulogy look like you know i think that that that's exciting to say like all right let's 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 go this is let's put a stamp on life um and so there's so many opportunities out there to do so yeah it's awesome cool thanks Thanks for yeah thanks man thanks for having me